Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us via telephone Chef Edward Lee. Chef Lee is the author of Smoke and Pickles and Buttermilk Graffiti and is the chef slash owner of restaurants 610 Magnolia, Milkwood, and Whiskey Dry in Louisville, Kentucky, and he is also the culinary director of Succotash in National Harbor, Maryland, and Penn Quarter, Washington, D.C. He appears frequently in print and on television, including earning an Emmy nomination for his role in the Emmy award-winning series, The Mind of a Chef. Most recently, he wrote and hosted the feature documentary called Fermented. He lives in Louisville and Washington, D.C., and you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Chef Edward Lee, and that's C-H-E-F-E-D-W-A-R-D-L-E-E. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. So I wanted to talk a little bit with you about your books first. Um, so what was the impetus for both of those? That's Smoke and Pickles and Buttermilk Graffiti. And by the way, those are great titles. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I mean, Smoke and Pickles is, is really the, you know, inch, intro to my food. Um, but I really wanted to, um, you know, some sometimes restaurant chefs, uh, um, you know, do restaurant food in the cookbooks, and I, and I really wanted to do something that was for the home cook mm-hmm. um, and accessible. And, um, you know, the recipes are, some of them are involved, um, but I feel like all of them are doable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really took a hard look at how to take restaurant food um, and interpret them in a way so that people can really make them at home and that they actually taste uh you know, like they should. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we're very, very, very proud of that. Cool. And how did you come up with those titles? Oh, a lot of them just happened sort of in a room, throwing things against the wall <laughs> and seeing what sticks. Uh-huh. Um, actually, I remember for the cookbook, we couldn't, we didn't have a title. Mm-hmm. And my editor and myself and the publisher was as uh, we were literally in, the, in their office and we were just, I mean, had probably a, a, you know, 30, 40 names and we're just going back and forth and back and forth. Finally, the publisher said, so what, like, what is it that excites you? And I'm like, you know, I, I like smoked food and I like pickles. And she was like, good, it's smoking pickles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Like, oh, yeah, okay, uh-huh. that works. That is cool. And how did um, Buttermilk Graffiti come about? And that's a different kind of book, isn't it? Yeah, so Buttermilk Graffiti is um, uh, less a cookbook, uh, even though there are recipes in the book, but it's more of a, you know, a travel log essay with a little bit of memoir in there. Um, and it's really about sort of my travels over the course of like two years, um, really discovering um, food by immigrants, you know, food that I think is... Uh, less celebrated in America, uh, food that should have more of a light spotlight on it, mm-hmm. um, and really went out there and sort of took a hard look at, at really some interesting communities and cultures and, and the food that they're cooking right now in America, and, uh, and they had a blast just, just traveling and talking to people and meeting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, actually, it's funny, that title for that book was the title that I had wanted for the first book hmm. 
and they said, well, that was that's kind of too odd for a first book. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, we were sitting in a room trying to figure out the title of, of the second book and couldn't come up with anything. They said, what was that, what was that title? I, uh, <laughs> that, that title I had for the first book that you guys all hated. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, yeah. No, it, it works this time. Yeah, so that's, that's cool. That's how that one happened. That's very cool. Um, so I've, I've been able to look through Smoke and Pickles, and there's some amazing recipes in there. And also I've watched uh, some of um, clips on YouTube uh, with you in them. And one of the things that hit me uh, when you're talking about culinary arts and you, you talk about you, you like to let borders disappear. And, and what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think... Um you know, in, in, in many ways, when we take cultural food, you know, like Italian food or French food or Chinese food. Or Korean um, food. Or Korean food. <laughs> um, you know, we, we tend to, and it's natural for human beings to do this, but we tend to want to package them in some kind of neat cultural box and say, mm-hmm. well, this is what Korean food is, and this is what Southern food is, and mm-hmm. this is what Mexican food is, and... and you know, I think the more you travel and the more you get out there and see the world, you realize that that's just not how it happens in the real world, mm-hmm. right? Like, we, we want to put a bow tie on Korean food and say, well, Korean foods are these eight things, mm-hmm. these ten things, and they all follow these rules. And then you go to Korea and you go, well, it's not really true all the time. Like, there's, there's a million exceptions, and we are so influenced by each other and the... the, the countries that surround us mm-hmm. and if you think about you know just take a quick gander at like american food and mexican food right like yeah if you go to mexico there's mexican food and you go to america there's american food and then well you go to texas border town mm-hmm. you, go, you know it, it, it's not like food changes because you walk over a border right um you know it's like cultures and things happen gradually mm-hmm. uh, and as you get closer and closer to texas and to the border lot of the uh, uh, sort of nuances and the identities of Mexico because you just you're very close to the border mm-hmm. and 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 there's so especially with the internet now and, and with internet you know how easy it is to travel right um, it, it's just the, the idea that that you know like Korean food is this and Italian food is this to me seems a little bit outdated and, and really what's happening uh, and and in America maybe faster than in other countries that we're seeing this this melding of cuisines come together. Um, we used to call it fusion, but it's really not anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we're starting to see people um, just discover their own definition of what Mexican food is and American food is and Korean food is. And people just, uh, you know, are much more free now to do what they want to. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the idea of this, this border um, between countries and between you know, cuisines and cultures. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's kind of you know disappearing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, one of on a on a personal note, one of my favorite Korean foods is kimchi pancake. And <laughs> is that a real Korean food or is that Korean American food? No, that's a real Korean food. Um, it's a very popular um, Korean food. Um, but then you know, you, you for example. Um, you know, people always say, oh, well, well, you know, I love Korean food and I love, 
you know, uh, uh, kalbi, which is like the, the barbecue beef, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and kimchi. And I go, you know, that's, that's great, but did you realize, like, the, the whole essence of kimchi, you know, being the spicy chili peppers, mm-hmm, right? The mm-hmm. chili flakes that go into it and make it red and, and fiery. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, chilies weren't, weren't even introduced into the Korea um, till about, like, I think the mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and beef was not introduced into Korea until really the, the like, late 1800s. Wow. Um, so when you think about it, you know, Korea is a 4,000-year history. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about Korean food, you know, I would say, like, you got to look at a timeline. you got to look at, at, at um, you know, history. Like, if you really talk about, all, you know, and, and that's why, you know, the people use the word authentic, which I hate. <laughs> right. You say, like, well, what's off, is this authentic Korean food? And I go, well, what you, you know, what era are you talking about? Oh, right. You want to go back, like, in history. Uh-huh. Real, uh, you know, quote unquote, authentic Korean food is really uh, a vegetarian food that has zero spice in it. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. nothing that we would recognize as Korean food today. Right, because right? it's always because evolving and always changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so if you think of it like like that, then well, we'll think about what what could Korean food be in the next two hundred years. Mm-hmm. It could be completely different than what we're looking at right now. And that's the evolution of human beings. That's the evolution of travel, of cultural influences. Like, these things happen, and, and, and it's fascinating to see that. Um, and I think we're living in a really interesting time right now in America where we're seeing what this, quote-unquote, American cuisine is becoming. Mm-hmm. Um and, and we're at a point right now, and this is where I talk a lot about this in Buttermilk Graffiti, that, um, you know, we're, we're, America's still a very young country, and from a culinary standpoint, we're still actually mapping out who we are. Mm-hmm. We're still defining it. Um, and, and it's fascinating to actually be living through this time and contributing to what that definition could look like. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be anything that we recognize in the next hundred years. It's going to be something really... Um, I think really cool and, and fascinating and really diverse and, and, and really inclusive. Um, and, and in some ways, I hope that that food identity also kind of bleeds out into who we are as Americans as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, and, and a lot of what you, you're talking about, you know, leads into uh, chefs and, and culinary artists having to be innovative and you know wanting to be innovative with their creations. So, along those lines, what's your philosophy of innovation as a chef? So, you know, I think I think innovation is something that is you know, inevitable, right? I mean, we we all sort of uh, um, you know want to do things our own way. Um, I think a lot of times. Um, Chefs can fall under sort of two very broad categories, and um, you know you can be an innovator or you can be a preservationist, mm. and and I think you need both mm-hmm. in, in, in a culinary landscape, right? So I, I you know I love that that there are French restaurants um, where they cook the food in a way that's very traditional to them, mm-hmm. in, in a way that that has been in you know a grandmother's recipe book um, or, or even foods that have been cooked the same way for generations mm-hmm. um, and they and they hold very true to that and I think 
those are incredible restaurants because they really do teach you about history and you can really taste a dish that was perhaps made in a, in a very similar way 200 years ago. So you're getting to actually taste things um, that people ate 200 years ago. And, and to me, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great that we have it. And we need that um, to keep sort of that, you know, like like food is, unlike history books or art or or you know, music that you can record and listen to, you know, years and years later, uh, food is different. Like, you have to actually sit there and taste it. Someone has to make it. Um, you can't, like, look at a 200-year-old recipe mm-hmm. and figure out what it's going to taste like in your head. I mean, some chefs can do that, but, but for the most part, people have to actually cook. Someone has to go out there and, and, and cook the food so that we actually know what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. we get to sort of understand history um, you know and, and then that's one sort of you know broad category and then the other one is you know uh, which is kind of where I put myself under is, is sort of an innovator mm-hmm. um, and then there are some chefs that go that's great I love traditional Korean food I love going to Korea and, and going to that restaurant that, that has been serving the same dish for 40 years and, and, and there are many that do that and, and they're amazing um, but that's not what I want to serve in my restaurants. Mm-hmm. That's not what I want to cook. You know, I want to take all these traditions and kind of mash them up and come up with, you know, something that's more unique to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like if, if you go to any of my restaurants, um, there's really nothing, there, there, there are dishes in, in all of my restaurants that you will never see in any other restaurant around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very unique to who I am. And, and, and I love that. I love being an innovative uh, chef. And I love sort of uh, taking all my knowledge and travel and experiences and just reinterpreting them through my own head and my own vision and you know, through my own hands uh, and creating something that's very expressive to who I am. And you know, I think at the end of the day when people try to describe my food, you know, I just say it's, it's really just my story on the plate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's who I am, and I think, to me, in, in many ways, the best cuisines um, of the best chefs um, are, are cuisines where, when you taste the food and you look at the dishes and you look at the ingredients, um, you get an idea of who the chef is. Um, you get an idea of that person um, and, and who they are, and, and that's really just all I try to do. And, you know, that makes me think of the, the words culinary arts. I mean, because what you're talking about, it, it's an art form. It's, it's really the, the whole philosophy of innovation and the, the creation that, you know, falls into the category of culinary arts. And so I, I think a lot of people, you know, don't tend to think about that. But you also talk about the preservation. So you go into a French restaurant and you have that history of French food and that's culinary arts as well, which I, I think is fascinating. Um, so you were here in Colombia in September, uh, and you were here for our Read, Eat, Grow Culinary Literacy Kickoff event. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about maybe your experience at that and kind of sure. why you think culinary literacy is important. Yeah, um, it, was the first, it was actually my first time in Colombia, and... and, and um, I love uh, uh, traveling through the South, and, and I've been to you know many, many, many small towns mm-hmm. um, throughout the South, and, and uh, Columbia was was a fascinating place. And someone actually um, gave me a recommendation 
to go to this little market um, at, at behind a gas station, uh-huh. which is basically just a quick gas station convenience store. But in the back was this lady that was making me a catfish stew. Oh, um, wow. And, and she could make me it for, I think, 28 years or something. Like oh, that. wow. That's cool. And um, it was it was fascinating and it was amazing. And um, I uh, had a, a bowl of catfish stew, which you know probably had no more than four ingredients in it. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it was fascinating and, and delicious. And, and I love foods like that. I love foods that taste so complex. And yet when you break it down, it's really just four ingredients cooked over, you know, a stove for, for you know, six, seven hours. Uh-huh. And how much, you know, to me that reflects the time, the age, you know, when you, when you didn't have much. And you didn't have much money and you had to make do right. with the stuff that was in your backyard. Um, but you were able to coax so much flavor um, out of those four things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it, it, it is some of the most complex cooking. Um, seemingly very simple, mm-hmm. uh, almost too simple. Like, you know, I looked at it and I was like, you know, it was a little muddy and the texture <laughs> was a little, you know, uh, 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 viscous and, and it didn't look like much. Uh-huh. And um, but I put a picture of it online and, and it got a lot of sort of reactions and, and John T. Edge, who as you know, is the director of the at Southern Foodways Alliance but, but has his own show, mm-hmm. um, actually was, was so moved by it um, because his mother um, had made him catfish stew um, growing up. And, and catfish stew, for anyone who's listening, it, it, it's something that you very, very rarely see in mm-hmm. a restaurant. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, it's probably one of the only places that I've ever seen it served um, outside of someone's home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, he ended up, pretty sure, uh, going in there and, and, and uh, writing about it or, or using it in one of his... Um, documentary film so oh, cool. um, it's just a, it's a you know it's, anyway it's a very nice um, connection and a memory there mm-hmm. um, so kudos to, to Columbia South Carolina yay um, <laughs> you know part of that with the the culinary literacy and what we're trying to do with the Read Eat Grow program yeah. statewide you know making sure that you know, people understand there are food deserts and people understand, uh, you know, the importance of preparing your own food. And so so if you could talk talk to that a little bit. I think um, it's really important, and, and we do some of this work in Louisville, Kentucky as well, um, that, you know, I, I thought the first step towards all this food literacy is, is well, there's two things. There's, um, I think there's a lot of people that are afraid of kitchens. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that, if you haven't cooked a lot, and if you, especially if you grew up um, in areas where there are food deserts and, and you haven't seen your mother or your parents cooking a lot, and, and unfortunately there's so many kids out there um, who just really have never eaten a home-cooked meal, mm-hmm. um, whose who's food every single day comes from, you know, a, a school lunch or, or boxed meal or mm-hmm. processed something out of a box. And, and, you know, the first thing that, that you know, and so much of food is tied into emotion. Yeah. And, and so much of food is tied into identity. Um, and, and we do some work on this, and, and it's really important that, um, you know, you don't shame someone, you don't embarrass someone for, for their meal choices. And especially, um, you know, a mother 
um, who's trying her best, to, maybe as a single mom, who's working two jobs and is mm-hmm. trying her best to raise um, some children, and she has, she can only do what she has the resources for. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I see these families and, and what they go through, and, and you know, we we really are trying to sort of gently say that you're not making any bad choices. Um, and, and the reason that this is happening is, is really uh, reasons that are beyond um, things that you can control. Right. Um, they, they go into huge um, sort of things about, you know, economic and socioeconomic factors and cultural things and, and, and you know, financial things and real estate. Um, and these, these are major, major issues, and many of them, unfortunately, have nothing to do with the mother who's just trying to survive. And feed her family, mm-hmm. um, and so for me, you know, food literacy um, is, is first of all, it's not lecturing, mm-hmm. um, it's not making anyone feel terrible about their choices. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really saying, "Hey, listen, this is a couple of recipes. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you. Um, maybe you've never seen fennel before. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. you've never eaten a dried date before, uh, or a prune." Um, but these are things that you can make really delicious food out of, and it's simple, it's fast, it's easy, um, and and it's something that's also not, you know, like, you're not going to take someone and, 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 and all of a sudden, you know, uh, tell them to make a brace, brisket, you know, that takes 14 hours. Right. Um, I think a lot of them are just sort of gentle introductory steps. So, you know, for example, the, 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 the one of the dishes I made was the ambrosia salad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really just like pears and oranges with a little blue cheese dressing. Um, and it's something that is very easy to make. You don't actually even have to turn on the stove. Um, it, it stores really easily. So if you have leftovers, you can very easily eat them the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks pretty. And, and you, at the end of the day, you know, you feel like you've accomplished something. Um, it tastes great, um, but it doesn't take a long time to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also something that is... is you know, the techniques that you're using are easy enough that if you do have a family with a slightly older kid, you're like, listen, help me, you peel the oranges and you cut that while I do the date, and then, you know, someone can mix up the blue cheese dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's, it's something that can be inclusive of the whole family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think more and more as I sort of, you know, see the world and, and the travel and, and, and focus on... Um, you know, not only food literacy, but, but also activism, you know, around, you know, what are we doing here with food and how are we helping our communities grow? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, these recipes, which, you know, for, for an accomplished chef, they may look at this recipe and go, well, that's really simple. Like, why would you even need that mm-hmm. in a book? Um, but, you know, for a family who's struggling, like, these recipes are really exciting and, and they're really key mm-hmm. um, to someone sort of getting out there and, and just getting their feet wet and going, okay, like, I'm going to try and make this. I'm going to try and make this uh, a chicken dish. Um, and it's, it's my family's going to eat it. And, and I don't care how much, you know, to me it's not about, like, oh, you have to use organic vegetables or you have right. to use quinoa or be healthy. Like, anything that you make, I don't care if it's a cheeseburger or chicken nuggets, pizza, if you make it at home with with good ingredients, they're always going to be healthier for you than the restaurant version of it, or especially than sort of the fast food version mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love cheeseburgers. We make them all the time at home. And it is 
better in quality and better for you than the version that I'm going to get at some fast food place. And a lot of it is just that. Like, you know, and, and at the end of the day, too, it, it will be cheaper um, if you know how to cook and you know how to sort of use your ingredients wisely and save them and use the leftovers. And so to me, um, if you can teach people, you know, get, get some of the fear out of cooking mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. get some of the sort of the negative uh, shaming out of cooking at home. Um, it, it gives people, uh, uh, it's really just a tool mm-hmm. um, for life. And, and it gives people, um, you know, that confidence to go out there and do that. And, and it's, really, that, that's, it's really important work. And, 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 and I, you know, kind of, I, I love doing it. Well, and, and that's the one word that I was thinking of, too, is confidence. Because, you know, if someone goes into their library and they see that there's a culinary literacy or culinary arts program, that might give them the confidence that they've been lacking to experiment at home and, you know, figure out what's good and what's good for their family. So um, that, that, I think, is key as well. Um, so uh, as we wrap up, since this is Library Voices, South Carolina, uh, do you have any kind of library stories you'd want to share? And it could be like a personal experience with a library growing up or maybe uh, a, a talk you've done at a library? I'm, I'm a huge library fan. Um, I've, I've, you know, been in library, you know, before the Internet, um, there, libraries were the only resource. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and in many ways, they still are for information. There's they're still things in, in libraries that you just can't find on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I remember as a young um, person living in New York, um, I couldn't afford uh, cooking school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I really wanted to go, but you know, it wasn't going to happen. And uh, I had to work. And, and um, you know, part of it is I, I wanted to learn about food and I wanted to learn about um all the, the, you know, culinary arts. Um, and I never went to cooking school. It's the one thing that many people are surprised to hear, but I never went to cooking school. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways I was able to educate myself was to go to the library. Uh, and I still remember I, I went to uh, the Mid-Manhattan Library, mm-hmm. um, and I would go there, I mean, every chance I could, every, you know, ounce of free time I had, I would go to the uh, Manhattan Library and I would just go to the culinary section, and they had a really uh, vibrant, you know, cookbook section and culinary history and, and food history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, would take out the book section and I just read everything I could. And, and you know, I gave myself a culinary education, mm-hmm. um, reading all these, I mean, hundreds of books, which I could not, not afford. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I couldn't afford to buy all these books, and, and there was no internet to, to scroll through them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and still, many of these books, you know, many of the great, great cookbooks, like you, there, there's summaries on them, excerpts on them online, but mm-hmm. you don't have the full book online. Right. Um, and so just going there and feeling the book and feeling the pages and, you know, uh, um, you know seeing the photos, um, and I was able to really, um, you know, I, I really credit being in libraries as part of my, you know, very important culinary education when I was young. Well, that's cool. It sounds like, you know, your library was your culinary education. That that was your culinary school. Yeah, it, it, in many ways it, it was. That's very cool. 
Um, well, as we wrap up, I want to be sure and let folks know that they can visit your website, and that's chefedwardlee.com. And also, while you were here in Columbia, South Carolina, you uh, did a couple of videos for our South Carolina educational television, and that's on knowitall.org, and I will put links to those in our podcast episode on our website. So I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is librarievoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.